So in the next two Sundays, we're going to be reflecting and thinking about generosity. And we're going to be doing it from the book of 2 Corinthians. This week, we're going to look at the source of generosity and why as believers, why should we be generous? The title for this week gives some of that away, grace and generosity. And and everything we're going to look at could come through the lens of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 11 that will pop up on your screen. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. I could have named this sermon, Generosity, a fruit of grace, something that is done in response to God. And I really want to answer two questions this morning. Why should we give and how should we give? So we're going to read the whole of the chapter. We'll read the whole of chapter 8 today. We'll read the whole of chapter 9 next week. And we have this stunning gospel picture of generosity here in front of us. Before we read, actually, let's, let's just let's take a moment, shall we, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the absolute privilege that it is to call ourselves your people, to come together this morning as the, the, the redeemed, the forgiven, the called out from the world. Lord, as we approach your word now, as we come to your word, would you still our hearts? Would you speak to us as we look at the example of the Macedonian churches and as we would listen to what Paul would teach us of the Lord Jesus? Would you speak to us this morning, we pray. Amen. So we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I gave my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, Finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your uh, completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. 
As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We will take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift uh, is being administered by us. For we aim to do what is honourable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in all matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my brother and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of his word. What we have in these two chapters is a stunning picture of what it is to be a servant of Jesus. And what we see more so is this stunning picture right in front of us of churches in desperate poverty overflowing with exceptional generosity. You see, one of the challenges of teaching about generosity is if I in any way try and try and teach, uh, try and command you to be generous, then there is no generosity. You are giving under compulsion, and that's not New Testament giving. I want to speak for a minute about tithes. And I speak of what the, the, the consensus I've come to from the scriptures, there will be disagreements with me, that is fine. But I am not convinced that Christians must tithe. And this statement needs explaining. Don't soundbite copy that and listen to nothing else. But, but listen to what I'm going to say. What does the Old Testament say about tithing. Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils of war to Melchizedek. God met Jacob at Bethel and promised him covenant blessings, and the patriarch promised God a tenth of everything granted to them. A tenth of Israel's seed and fruit and flock were given to the Lord, and the people gave a tenth to the Levites to support them, and the Levites in turn would give a tenth to the chief priest. Those who didn't tithe were threatened with a curse, whilst those who did tithe were promised blessing. And I think, for starters, we, we, we always assume that the, 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 the tithing pattern was 10%, but I don't think it was. I think it was far closer to 20, because some think there was up to 14 tithes held every seven years. So, so, so the number of 10%, I think, actually, in the Old Testament is a, is a far greater picture. Why do I come to this conclusion? Firstly, we aren't Old Testament people. We're not under the Mosaic law. They're no longer in force for us. There are nuances to that, but, but this is the, the, the point here. Secondly, the tithes were given to the Levites and the priests. And there is no Levites and priests in the new covenant but us. The church is not the fulfillment of the priestly order. The church is the new Israel. And although Jesus would go on to affirm tithes, it was before the new covenant came into play. It was before the cross that Jesus did so. And also, and most compelling for me as I've read this, is as we have looked at generosity, nowhere is this stipulation to tithe 
given. I think this is an important context here because generosity that's underpinned by a command isn't really generosity. But what's set before us then is simply this, that generosity comes from a heart that wants to give. So how then will Paul teach the church in Corinth? How will he teach them to be generous without commanding them, but so that they will have a desire in their hearts to give, to give more, to give well? That's what we're going to look at here. I wonder how many times you've caught yourself daydreaming of what would happen if I had a long-lost relative that passed away and I inherited 300 million pounds, what would I do with it? I'm sure we've all had those kind of daydreaming moments. And I wonder in that context if you think, oh, I'd give away X amount. We're good at that, aren't we? We're good at working out where we give. I give that, I pay for the church building project. By the way, if you do ever come into a lot of money, that would be much appreciated. Um, but, but we think about that sort of thing, don't we? And I think often we think about how generous we would be if we reached the level that we wanted to be at. Rather than setting a principle of generosity within us, rather we, we, we look at ourselves and think, if I just get there, then I can be more generous. Well, we know that if we set things for the future that we're not prepared to do now, it often doesn't happen. How generous, and if this passage teaches us anything, it's simply that if you are generous with a little, it will dictate how generous you would be with a lot. So the circumstances then of, of this church... This is during the reign of Emperor Claudius, and there are many outbreaks of famine. We read in, in Acts 11. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named uh, Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the earth. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Judea is constantly experiencing famine, and the Christians were greatly struggling. This isn't a people that are lacking a few luxuries, but these are people that are in real, real struggle. And listen to them, what Paul tells them. This is what he says about their efforts in Romans 15. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So this is the context in which Paul is speaking here. They're preparing to give. And we, we, we open this passage in the first six verses then with the example of the Macedonian churches. Uh, Philippi, uh, Berea, and Thessalonica are, are these churches within Macedonia. And he wants to commend them for their effort to help needy people. And the first principle that Paul gives us is they give freely despite their own difficult circumstances. Listen, verse 2, they were in a severe test of affliction. Further, they were also in extreme poverty. So he's opening up by teaching the Macedonians didn't give because they had tons of extra cash lying around, but they gave in spite of their severe affliction because they saw the extreme need that was out there. And I think it teaches us that first principle. Generosity will never happen if we start by evaluating what we have. Giving is not limited by what we have. It sounds, of course, counterintuitive. It sounds so against the self-centeredness that we would see around us in this world. But verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. 
of their own accord. These Christians had little to give. They're in a severe test of affliction, but they gave. If we look for the leftovers to give from, we will never give. We always think we need, don't we? Everything that we've got. It's our human nature in us that says we want to safeguard what we have. The rainy day fund could be a bit bigger. The holiday budget could be a bit bigger. That wee extension would be nice. My child needs, insert whatever else your child wants, which may be many things. It doesn't matter somebody's income. We'll always find ways to spend money. But the point is, they gave. But there's something utterly glorious in verse 2 here. Their giving was done with joy. Their giving was done from their abundance of joy. Verse 3, these Christians gave of their own accord, meaning they did it completely voluntarily. There was no command here to set aside to give, but totally voluntarily they gave. And even more than that in verse 4, they were begging earnestly to have the favor, to have the joy of being part of the relief of Christians. What a way to look at finances, isn't it? I have so little, but I'm so desperate to be part of the relief of others. Please, can I give? It's a stunning picture in light of the gospel. It's a stunning picture that understands what a savior has done and then in submission to him, what our finances look like. An incredible picture. It was done from their own hearts. They gave beyond their means and in spite of their affliction and their poverty, they begged to be able to do this. It was Spurgeon that said, should pop up, in all my years of service, to my Lord, I have discovered a truth that has never failed and has never been compromised. That is, that truth is that it is beyond the realms of possibility that one has the ability to outgive God. Even if I give the whole of my worth to Him, He will find a way to give back to me much more than I gave. Oh, that's beautiful. How true is it? A God that sent His one and only Son that would give everything for us that we might give something back. Where does this heart and joy for generosity come from? How can we have it? This is, what's, this is what he's explaining here. They begged to participate in this grace of giving and favor. Generosity comes first from giving ourselves to the Lord. Someone that is not in the Lord cannot give to the Lord delightfully and joyfully. But desiring to give and seeing our ability to give as a grace that comes from God comes from first us giving ourselves fully to the Lord. And that's why I think it's so important to think about tithes within this. This isn't a command, but this is a response to the Lord that gave himself for us. And I think Paul makes this point a lot. We don't want your money. We want you to give your life to the Lord. And when you give your life to the Lord, generosity will flow. As a church, we're not here for your money. That's not why we exist. But we're here to help serve the Lord and in that that we might each be mature in the eyes of the Lord and that we would give our lives fully to him. And when we give our lives fully to him, our giving and our generosity will overflow from there our lives are not our own 
And when we fully begin to understand who we are in Christ, we begin to understand that what we have is not our own. There are many things that what you give does. It supports the work of full-time elders like me and soon-to-be Craig in this church. We receive a stipend so that we don't have to be burdened by external employment so that we can give our lives fully to serving in this church in the kingdom of the Lord. You support me, you support my family, and for that I am truly grateful. You enable the work of our support staff, for Amy looking after our youth and kids, for Suzanne looking after uh, our administration stuff, vital tasks within a church this size that they look after. It enables ministry, it enables discipleship, it resources our Sunday school teachers, our youth teams throughout the church. It enables us to, 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 to stream to those unable to be here, to put something together of the highest caliber. And it looks like outreach ministries of many forms. What you give maintains this building. Although if you knew how little the guys actually spent on keeping this place as it is, it is quite remarkable. But it enables this building to be maintained and cleaned so that it can be used for the purposes and the glory of God. And this building soon will need some serious work some serious renovation. If you're a member, come to the AGM on Wednesday. There's an update about all of that. Um, but, but that's what giving does. Giving meets needs. It gives us as, as elders the ability to have funds discreetly to be able to help real need that exists within the life of the church. It supports mission work, both here and overseas. It does a lot of other things, but that is only possible by the generosity of God's people. As we move into verse 7, we see that giving proves love. These Corinthians are to excel in faith and speech, in knowledge and earnestness and in love. This great picture of Christian maturity right here. But also do not neglect this important virtue. The end of verse 7. See that you excel in this act of grace also. This, this generosity, this giving, this act of grace. Generosity is an important virtue that we excel in, as well as faith, knowledge, love, speech, diligence. Our generosity is an expression of the gospel. You see that in verse 8. Not command, but done generously. And Paul points out that our love for God is proven to be genuine by the earnestness, the desire we have to help others from ourselves. We can never just say that we love, can we? Nobody believe it. If you told your spouse, your child, your parent, I love you, and never did anything that would ever give any indication of the sort, you wouldn't believe it, would you? But our love is shown through our response, our actions. Our actions show that we understand the grace of God towards us. True love is kind and generous, sacrifices and it acts. And even in this picture, it gives from a lack. He turns then to the example of our Lord Jesus in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's the direct link between what we give and the Lord Jesus himself. Generosity proves love. Though Jesus was rich, he had all the eternal glory of heaven. Everything that he could ever want in utter abundance. 
For our sake he became poor so that we might be rich. Never has there been such a, an incredible exchange. Never has there been such an act of giving. Never will it be replicated again. But Paul uses how Jesus gave himself for us so that we might be blessed. So that we would give generously in spite of our circumstances in a sacrificial manner to those in Christ. The love and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is our motive to be generous. How much should we give? C.S. Lewis said this, and I think this is really good. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. From verse 10 to 15, we read about this abundance, the fact that you are given so that you can give. Paul calls the Corinthian church to finish the work that they began in saving money to help the needy in Jerusalem. He calls for them to finish this work. It's interesting, he he doesn't say that the point of giving is to give to such an extent that you then need help from others, right? The The point here isn't bankrupt yourself. But if we're completely honest, I don't really think that's going to be an issue for many of us. That's not our goal here. Paul recognizes that there are, of course, limitations on what we can give. But he also says that there is this picture here that you've given your abundance today so that when you are in need, there will be help there from others. We see that, don't we? The very public need within our church at the minute for the Goring family. Many have given incredibly generously to this family. If you want to hear of their story, our Facebook page, the links are all there. You can find out their story of their house adaptations for their boy David. There is a great need there and people are stepping up and meeting that need from from themselves and that's wonderful. Please consider that. And there's this picture from Ecclesiastes that there are seasons for everything. There are good days, there are bad days, there are times we have, there are times we won't have. It's the cycle of life. And rather than being nervous about the future, we recognize that we are here to help each other when there is true need. Paul says that the goal is equality and fairness. Here's what it means. How bad would it be if one of us sits at a table with more than we could possibly need and one of our brothers and sisters sits with nothing? You know, this is a radical, radical idea at Christianity. It's so set apart from the political ideologies of socialism and communism that will take from you, centralise it, and then decide where it goes. This isn't taken from you. This isn't done under compulsion. But this is generosity in light of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ given to you. And that's what we see is grace knowing, Jesus loving, gospel people. We want to help those in need. And Paul validates his point by Referring to Exodus 16 and verse 15. When all the needs of the people were met in the wilderness, coming out of slavery from Egypt, whether somebody had gathered a lot or somebody had gathered little, each person had what they needed. We know that seasons changed. When I first started studying, I worked, man, I washed dishes in Dobby's. It was a fun job. I worked for the church, my home church. I studied. I made about 400 pounds a month. It was great, it was fine at the time, but now 
as a dad, as a family of four, it wouldn't be possible. Seasons change, my life has changed drastically. What was once able for us is now not able as it was all those years ago. Seasons in life change. The point is that we look to meet the needs that are there. And we finish then with this, with this really the story of the delivery of the funds. I like this, there's real transparency here, I would say, from verse 16. Um, and, and Paul's taking great care to make sure that he and his companions are not discredited as they, as they transport the money to Jerusalem. Paul wants there to be no idea that somehow he's siphoning off funds, that he is somehow doing anything at all out of order. So Titus is going on this trip along with a famous brother among the churches preaching the gospel. And, and Paul's not saying, trust me with the handling of your money. But he has other trusted people who are handling money so that there's no cause of accusation whatsoever. Complete, complete transparency here. They're going to show that they're honourable both in the sights of the Lord, but also in the sights of man. Verse 21. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul doesn't set up a, an organisation. He doesn't do, he doesn't look to, 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 to anything else other than the local church for the redistribution of the churches that were in need. Each church took a collection. They sent their funds to the churches in need in Judea. And Paul and his companions were simply the carriers of that money. So where does this leave us? Evidently, we see here a picture of the gospel changing how we look at money and possessions. The earth and all that is contained within it belongs to the Lord. And our generosity is a response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice at Calvary. We want to see our generosity not as a burden, but as an act of grace and a virtue that we are to excel in. Therefore, in spite of our circumstances, we give with joy that proves our love for the Lord. Generosity doesn't come from how much we have, but it comes from a sacrificial heart of those that truly love Jesus. So let me answer simply then the two questions that I started with. Why should we give, verse 8, to prove that our love for Christ is genuine? Verse 9, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. We do this because generosity is the heart of the gospel. How should we give, verse 6, by giving ourselves wholly to the Lord? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at your grace to us. We marvel that you would be so generous to sinners like us, that you would send your son as a sacrifice for us, that we might receive an eternal inheritance with you. Lord, what grace. Help us, Lord, to be people that so know that grace that we extend that grace out the way to those in need. Lord, we thank you that as you look upon us, you do not see just a sinner, but you see one who is clothed within the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for all that you have done for us. Help us, Lord, to live holy lives. 
Help us, Lord, to give ourselves wholly to you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.